Good morning, church. There it is. And Merry Christmas to you. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad to gather together with you on this Christmas Eve Sunday. And let me extend a special welcome to the kids who are with us this morning. So glad that you're here uh, with us and uh, just really thankful to be here together with you. So this morning I want to start off uh, by sharing a Christmas story that I recently heard. I'd never heard this before, but I think we all need to start off with me explaining this outfit of mine. Uh, We'll get the excitement and the potential distraction out of the way. A few years ago, I was gifted this Charles Spurgeon ugly Christmas sweater. And so it's become a sort of tradition here at CBC that I will wear it for one of the Advent sermons. And so I proudly wear it this morning. Uh, Every time I wear it, even this morning, someone asks me, is that that your face on the sweater? Uh, Which I understand why they think that. There's a little bit more hair on on, uh, Spurgeon's head than mine. Uh, But the answer is no. I have not yet reached that level of fashion where I would wear clothing with my own uh, face on it. Okay, we've settled that. Uh, let's, Let's move along now to the Christmas story that I want to share. Our Christmas story goes back to the Roman Empire before the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire, Julius Caesar, the Ides of March 44 B.C., Caesar was assassinated by a group of senators who wanted a change in power. Many of you know this from your history classes or maybe watching a play or a movie. Assassinating Caesar wasn't received well by the Roman public, and there was lots of infighting, fighting for who would take the throne, who would be next to rule. Eventually, it was Caesar's grandnephew, Octavian, who took the throne. Julius Caesar actually wanted him to be the ruler, Uh, his successor, but he was young. He was 18, and so there was some concerns there. Eventually, he did take the throne, and he put on gladiator games as as a way to honor and celebrate Caesar's name. And, And during those games, there was a bright comet that hung in the sky for nearly a week. People were captivated by this heavenly sign. And it was eventually believed by all in Rome that it was the spirit of Julius Caesar ascending on to the heavens. He was becoming divine. Caesar was becoming a god. Now, the comet later has become known as the Julian Comet. Again, it was significant. It was in the month of July, Julius's month. Actually, that's when the, the name Caesar became a title, a title for the emperor and a title of divinity. And all the emperors that followed him took that name. Octavian, his grandnephew, was the one who came up with that. And to get support that he was the rightful ruler, he issued a new coin to be minted. On the back, there was an image of a comet with the words divine Julius written on them. Of course, it was in Latin, not in English. And on the front was an image of his face. And his new name written, Caesar Augustus. Now, his name should sound familiar to you. Caesar Augustus is the one written about in Luke chapter 2. He's the one who called for the census of the empire that led everyone back to their hometowns, and we're thinking specifically of Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem. So, what's the connection to Christmas? Well, we know that a heavenly sign also coincided with the birth of Jesus, didn't it? Let me read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and you can follow along on the screen. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So the original hearers of the Gospel of Matthew all lived under Roman rule. They saw the coins. They they knew the stories and the tributes. They understood the connection with heavenly signs and with divinity. But the Gospel message is reversed, isn't it? It's an upside-down Gospel. It's not about a man achieving the status of the divine, Not about Caesar becoming God through death, but about the divine coming to earth. God becoming man through birth. That's why King Herod was concerned when the wise men came to him. That's why he ordered every boy under the age of two to be killed. They were trying to stop this newborn king. God Becoming man, that's the beauty and the mystery of Christmas. And we've been considering it these past few weeks, haven't we? In Hebrews chapter 2, Mike helped us to consider the incarnation of the Son of God. And not just that God came down, but Emmanuel, God with us. In Hebrews 4, Serge reminded us of the humanity of Jesus. He showed us that we can and we should turn to him Because Jesus really knows what we're going through. There is no one more compassionate or empathetic than Jesus. He can relate to us and he does relate to us through his humanity. Why his birth? Why his life? But it all points to his death. Friends, we celebrate Jesus in the manger because we know that Jesus went to the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus accomplished what he came to do, which means that we can't separate his coming from his crucifixion. We can't separate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. And so this morning, as we close out our Advent series, we will consider together the perfect sacrifice of Jesus from Hebrews chapter 10. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we thank you for Emmanuel. We thank you for Christ who has come in the flesh, lived this life perfectly, a life that we couldn't live, and died a death that we deserved. And Father, thank you that you have made yourself known through your word, and we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word as you are faithful to do. Lord, for some, this will be the first time they hear your voice. Would you open their ears and open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? And for the rest, Father, would you speak to us faithfully, helping us to fix our eyes on Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for us to understand what the sacrifice of Jesus was all about, we need to know about the law of God and the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. I'll summarize that in three sentences. Number one, God is holy, and the breaking of God's law is punishable by death. 
God is holy, and the breaking of God's law is punishable by death. Sentence number two. God is loving and gracious, and so he allowed for a substitute to die in the place of the sinner. And number three, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never an end in itself. It always pointed towards an ultimate sacrifice. It always pointed to a coming sacrifice. It was never meant to do what sacrifices are meant to do. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 10, the first four verses. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In the same way that keeping God's law, keeping the Ten Commandments, was never a means of salvation, meaning that we couldn't actually earn salvation if we, if we kept the law, because we couldn't keep the law, and even if we could, that was never the purpose of the law, to lead to salvation. The sacrificial system could never actually do what was needed. Listen again to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What we need is our sins taken away. And we're told, and we understand, that animal blood isn't enough. Right? It's, it's an issue of equality. Imagine with me a horrible crime, a horrible crime that's committed against your family. A family member dies as a result of this crime. We could even think of uh, the most vulnerable of our family, children. Imagine that after going to court, the judge recognizes the guilt of the criminal, and the judgment against the criminal is that they must also experience deep loss for the loss that they have brought upon you. Now, the criminal offers... his pet goldfish. And the judge accepts. Some of you are angry. Just even the thought of, of, of something like that, su such deep injustice, it affects us, doesn't it? What would you think? What would you do? Right? Why wouldn't that be okay? Well, it's because the life of a goldfish can't compare with the life of a person. It doesn't, doesn't even come close now, in a similar way, how can animal blood satisfy the sin of a human and the penalty that's required, which is our own lives, our own blood? It can't. An acceptable human sacrifice is required. We need a greater sacrifice. Look with me as we continue to survey Hebrews chapter 10. We look at verses 10 through 14. Hebrews 10 Verses 10 through 14. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. 
every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Sin after sin, year after year, priests needed to make intercession for us and for themselves through sacrifice. But the scripture tells us that it was never enough. It was actually meant to point and to show that it's not enough because it had to be repeated. Now, they, they surely must have felt relief when a sacrifice was made, knowing that God has considered them and their guilt and has, has shown and extended grace and mercy. But then they sin again. They fail again. And so there's another sacrifice. But it's never enough. They must have felt an emptiness and a longing for actual healing, right? True wholeness. Just a partial band-aid, if you will. Now, I trust that you felt this before too, haven't you? I know I have. We ask ourselves questions, how much good can I actually do to make up for all the bad that I've done? How many times can I fall into sin before God gets tired of me? Friends, in prayer and preparation, I know that some of you are broken this morning. Some are heartbroken. You're dealing with sins and and different circumstances that you are involved in or things that have been done to you. You're afraid to hope because every other thing that you put your hope in has let you down. And you just don't know if you can try one more thing or believe another promise. But through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, we have been sanctified once for all time. Let's dwell on that for a minute. Once for all time. There is nothing left for you or for anyone to do. It is finished. Right? Jesus cried out those words while he was on the cross. Right before he gave up his spirit and, and spoke and gave his last breath, he cried out, it is finished. Just a few chapters before uh, where we are now in Hebrews chapter 7, the author tells us about Christ being the ultimate high priest. Right? As we've read here briefly, priests usually have to offer daily sacrifices right, for themselves first to be, even, be able to represent us and then for their people, but not Jesus. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for himself because he himself is without sin. He offered a sacrifice once and for all when he offered himself. Friends, hear the good news of Christianity this morning. There is nothing more for you to do. One perfect sacrifice for all time, for all sin. And we see the victory of Jesus through his sacrifice in two ways. First, we see that he was raised from the dead. 
He didn't stay dead. His resurrection shows that God accepted his sacrifice and that he accomplished his task of destroying death. Now, the second way that we know that Christ is victorious is because he is now seated at the right hand of God. Right? We just read that in Hebrews 10. The work is done, and so he sits in victory. Now, it's Christmas Eve Sunday, and so I'm going to give you some bonus material that's not fully included in the sermon, uh, free of charge, my Christmas gift to you. Yes, Jesus is seated on the throne, but that doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. Right, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 tells us that because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So what is Jesus doing right now? In the throne room of heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father, the scriptures declare that right now he is interceding for you, praying for you. I think it's appropriate to refer to Charles Spurgeon just once in this sermon. It would, it would feel like we missed something if I didn't. And so I'll do that here. Spurgeon, in reflection on Hebrews 7 and the intercession of Christ and the, the fact that Christ is praying for us, he, he asks, why is it that God can save completely? Uh, in, in his words, is, why can he save to the uttermost, to the very end? Well, it's because he always lives to intercede for them. Why is it that God can save completely? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Friends, when you come to God through Jesus, you will be saved completely. If you're here this morning and you don't know that, you are weary and looking for rest, Come to Jesus. He will not forsake you. He will joyfully welcome you in. The judgment that you deserve, he took upon himself. And so there's no fear of rejection. Because we feel that, don't we? What if I come? Then he finds out. He already knows. And he's already handled it. There's no fear of of rejection. Dear Christians, this is the message that we hold on to. This is the message that we're called to declare and so spread the message of the gospel that Jesus is able to save completely all who come to him. Jesus has done it all. He was born to die and he did that. And so what now? Look with me to Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And so what, what is the author of Hebrews telling us? He's telling us that the sin that separated us from God 
has been paid for, has been cleansed. That separation that our sin has brought is gone because of Jesus. And so we've been reconciled. We have direct access to God. And then he goes on to show us that we honor and benefit from the life and sacrifice of Jesus by doing these following things that he's going to list. Let's make sure we're clear on the same page. We're not saved or more saved by doing the things we're going to consider. No. We, we are living and enjoying the life that God has set for us. We are receiving the blessings of being a part of the family of God. Verses 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Five things that we're called to do, that we are encouraged to do. Let's consider them together. Number one, let us draw near. Right? We, we read that in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. The problems that we had to access God and to be in the presence of God and the problem of our moral and our spiritual pollution has been dealt with. So we can draw near. And so the, the author encourages us, let us, Therefore, draw near. Brothers and sisters, we need the life and the sustenance that comes from God. And so don't keep back. We considered this concept of a true heart for those of you who were with us in the book of, uh, when we preached through the book of James. It's this idea of wholeness. It's the idea of an undivided heart where we're not trying to live two lives or go in two different directions. And the only way that we can have such wholeness and such stability is in Christ. It's the same with full assurance. Now, I, I know that it might sound arrogant to be so certain of our eternal future and our eternal position. But we can be certain because it's not found in us. It's not based or waiting on our own efforts it can only come from the finished and perfected sacrifice of Christ. And so I'll ask again in a different way. Friends, do you have that assurance this morning? If you are a believer and you struggle with assurance, what's happening is that you're looking too much at your own life and not enough at the life of Jesus. And so look to him. And dear friend, if, if you're here this morning, if you've never believed, please know that the Word of God declares with authority and assurance that you can believe today and leave with full assurance of your salvation. If you put all your hope and all your trust in Jesus, the Scriptures declare that you are saved. Number two, let us hold on 
right? We read, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And so the image here of, of holding on or holding fast is grabbing onto something as if our lives depended on it. And I don't know how the memories and the stories come to my mind or where they come from, but I remember the first time I rode a, a roller coaster, a real roller coaster, uh, one that actually does all the flips and the turns and it's, you have to be a certain height to be a part of it. Uh, I think I was around 14 years old. The ride was called Batman, I think. It might have been Batman something. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was one of the newer rides many moons ago, uh, Six Flags. Uh, it was this ride, I think what was new about it is that the platform uh, beneath you lowered. And so you weren't in a cart or in a sort of train, but you had the shoulder strap harness and the, 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 the ground disappears. Uh, and your legs hang down and then you, you know, we have fun. Um, I remember that my shoulder straps weren't locking in. Uh, and the ride was getting ready to go. Uh, I didn't scream, but I did call out with some urgency in my voice to the attendant. And they came, and they had to reset the ride, and everyone went back up and went back down, and they were locked into place. I held on to that harness tighter than I've ever held on to anything in my entire life. Right? Our holding on shows that we have no other hope. We are called to put everything we hold to and believe and hope for in Jesus. But if, if we can stay with the same illustration, let me ask you, did my 14-year-old muscles and grip holding on to that shoulder bar keep me safe and secure? Emotionally, it helped, maybe a bit, but, but that's not what kept me. If When we went on that first turn, I would have flown away. I was safe because I was being held. Right, kids? When you cross the street and you're holding on to your dad's hand, is it your holding his hand that keeps you safe? Or is it his strong grip that keeps you safe? You see, our holding on shows where we put our faith, and it's important. That's why we're called to hold on. But the reason our hope is certain is because we are being held. And so we're called to live today with hope for tomorrow. Number three, let us encourage one another. And you see that I'm getting that from the text directly. That phrase, repeated phrase, let us. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. And I love the wording here. It, it's important. It's intentional. Consider one another so that you can provoke, so you can stir up, so you can pull out of someone love and good works. There is a serious intentionality here. You are called to think on what your fellow member, your fellow brother and sister in Christ needs. How will you best stir them up? Do they need encouragement? Do they need training and strengthening? Do you need to be more patient with them? Do they need a rebuke? Consider. And notice here, we don't stir ourselves, uh, we don't stir ourselves up to love and good works, right? We need one another to do that to us. And so, number four, let us gather together. 
right? Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Some, 2,000 years ago and today, are in the habit of not prioritizing what Jesus has called us to prioritize, which is meeting together. Primarily, this is speaking about the, the, the gathering on the Lord's day. Friends, it's, it's desperately important for your life that you are around God's people. We all need the encouragement and teaching that comes from God's word. We need to lift up our voices together in song and in prayer to partake in the ordinances, the means of grace that God has given us. Now, on any given Sunday, the sermon might be amiss, the music might be amiss, but when we prioritize the gathering, we are honoring and worshiping God. We are saying that God's ways are more important than our own. And let me also point out that it's not just important for your benefit. Right? We can fall into that thinking. Right? We can tell ourselves, this week, I've had a busy week this week. What I need more than anything today is sleep. I just need to have a me day. Should I ask you to raise your hands if you had a me day? I won't do that. All parents will say, what's that? Right? I haven't had a me day in, in many moons. But we're reminded through God's word, dear brothers and sisters, it's not about you. You neglecting to gather is a decision that's centered on yourself. But you prioritizing the gathering is centering yourself on God and on others. Friends, it's good for us to see one another sitting together under the preaching of God's word. To hear each other's voices singing truths to God and about God. We all need uh, uh, to see a friendly face that we know believes the same things that we believe. To ask us, how's your week been? How can I pray for you today? And that's the context of the verse, isn't it? Don't neglect the gathering so that you can strengthen and encourage one another. Friends, when we're together, we're called to provoke one another to love and good works, which you just considered, but also to look up together. So number five, let us look up. If you're following along, let me repeat those for you. Let us draw near. Let us hold on. Let us encourage one another. Let us gather together. And let us look up. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What, what day? This day that the writer mentions is the day of Christ's return. The day that Jesus will come back for his bride, the church. And he will judge the living, and the dead. We are called to help each other more and more as Jesus' return draws closer. And I remember one of my pastors long ago, uh, back when I was a teenager, when I was holding on to that roller coaster uh, shoulder strap, uh, he used to say, I don't know when this day will be. I don't know when Jesus will return. But I know that we're closer today than we were yesterday. That's true, isn't it? This is a call, when we look up, it's a call to prioritize Christ and one another over all things. 
Now, I mentioned it in the beginning of our Advent series, and I'll say it again now. Just as God's people before Christ looked forward to the coming of the Savior, we also are to live looking forward to Jesus' coming. Right? They had great confidence in the promises of God, but we, friends, have even more. We have greater reason for confidence because God has already proven His faithfulness by sending His Son. God's word is true and it can be trusted. And we'll close by asking this question. What do we look forward to? I'll answer based on the song that we'll sing after the sermon. Joy to the world. This song was written by Isaac Watts. It's not about the birth of Christ, but it's about his second coming. Now we sing it at Christmas time because there can't be a second coming without the first. And so as we've been trying to do, and we do every Advent, we stir up our affections, remembering what God has done in his first coming and yet looking forward to the day that he returns. Two things that we look forward to, then we'll close in song. Number one, kingly rule. We're looking forward to be ruled by the king of kings, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Now, if this was talking about Jesus' birth, it wouldn't be accurate. Christ wasn't received nor honored as king, was he? We're told that he was despised, that he was rejected. But there is a day when heaven and nature will sing. There is a day that we will repeat the sounding joy for all of eternity. In another verse, we're told that he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, and wonders of his love. It's so hard to read lyrics, uh, and so I, that had to come out of me, right? But, but as we look up and wait and we prepare our hearts, we live with expectation and longing for the coming king. Very importantly, let us live under Christ's rule and authority today. He is our king. We are his people. And so let us live with that reality in mind. Number two, we look forward to that day because we look forward to the day that the curse is reversed. Number one, kingly rule. Number two, curse is reversed. And in the third verse, we sing... No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If, if you're a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, then you have certainly experienced the blessings of Christ in your life. But the world is broken. There are still sins and sorrows. The effects of the curse are still felt. There is hurt and injustice and brokenness. But there is a day that his blessings will flow and undo all that the curse has done. And so, brothers and sisters, we celebrate and we sing today with our hearts set on Christ, 
and our eyes set on eternity. Amen. Let me ask you to stand with me as we close in our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Emmanuel, God, you are with us in our nature, in our sorrow. You are with us in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave. And now you are with us, or rather we with you, in resurrection, ascension, and triumph. Fix our eyes on the splendor of your second advent. Amen.